The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So we're beginning a conversation about what in the tradition are called the Ten Paramis or Paramitas, the Ten Perfections of the Heart. And uh, these are exactly those qualities, any one will do when we develop it by remembering to recognize it and learning to trust it, learning to let, you know, when we meet experience, when things happen, show up in our lives, then we want to meet that experience with these qualities. And it creates a refuge. This is, you know, we're, we're all looking to be safe in the world. And uh, mostly, we're here because we realize a lot of what we thought would make us safe doesn't actually make us safe. But uh, then we wonder, well, what actually makes us safe? Or what actually can we trust? And it isn't money, and it isn't even friends, as wholesome as that can be, or as useful as money can be, or health, right? Health isn't a refuge because it comes and goes, it changes. But these values of loving kindness and generosity and integrity, this commitment to non-harming, commitment to truthfulness, to resoluteness, to energy, like willingness to do what needs to be done to show up, equanimity, patience, wisdom. I think that's ten. I might have missed one or two. But anyway, we'll be going slowly spending a few weeks on each of these ten qualities and really understanding it as a refuge. And not in a idealistic way oh, or a sentimental way, but actually as a support practically in our life with the conditions that actually arise for human beings. And when we realize that one of these values, because any one of these values, of course, opens us to all the others. You can't really be cultivating generosity without also cultivating kindness and patience and truthfulness and all the others. They're like gateway, gateways. Gateways into the heart. You know, in Buddhism, we sometimes use the term bodhicitta. Citta means heart and bodhi means awake, so the awakened heart, the heart that awakens to freedom from clinging, freedom from a heart, clinging to self-centered drama, clinging to ideas of fear, not being good enough, being better than, any kind of clinging to things that separate, divide up our experience. And the whole point of these ten qualities and developing one of them or developing all of them is to create stability, a refuge that takes us across the flood. So last week, for those who weren't here, I talked about the four floods. This is an image the Buddha used a lot in his teachings. And I mentioned because he taught mostly around the Ganges River, the floodplain of the Ganges River. So they had a lot of terrible floods. And, you know, back then, of course, they didn't know when they were going to happen. So it was the, the great natural disaster that would just sweep away a village. 
And so the Buddha likened what happens in our mind to these natural disasters of a flood sweeping through and carrying everybody away. Because we know that in our own experience how these obsessive tendencies of really wanting some nice experience and the obsessiveness of that can sweep us away so that we end up not being very skillful at all in our interactions because we're obsessing about the thing we think we need or want. And we obsess, we get swept away by our ideas of becoming, becoming a good meditator, even something seemingly that wholesome, seemingly wholesome like wanting to become a um, great meditator, somebody who's calm or somebody who doesn't lose their cool. But being obsessed with that image of you out there, unshakable and cool, actually is suffering. Like having to be that person. Because then as soon as we have that idea of becoming that person, then we're afraid of who we are. Like a person who has normal reactive patterns, <laughs> conditioned patterns to be afraid, to be, right? So we get swept away by our obsessions about pleasant sense experience, about wanting to become, about different views that we have, opinions that we have, being right about something. And the Buddha also says we get swept away by ignorance. And this is that sense of certainty that I already know what's going on so I don't actually have to pay attention. I don't actually have to be curious. I don't have to investigate. Right Now that's a more quiet kind of obsession, that certainty that I know enough of what's going on so I don't actually have to relax into the don't-know mind and observe in a careful, sensitive way. Like when you go home tonight with your family or whoever you live with, or your own mind if you live alone, you know, just notice how sure you are what that situation is all about. Like we don't have a sense of innocence and wonder and sort of presence, curious presence with our cat, with our partner, with our, our own mind, because we're pretty sure we know our cat, you know. And what we know is our idea of our mom, our cat, our partner, our whatever, ourself. But we don't know directly, immediately. And that's this obsession of ignorance, because we have to maintain that arrogance of certainty. I know what it is to be a human being. I mean, most of us think we really know what it is to be a human being. And so we don't look. And all life long, we obsess with our certainty in order to maintain it. And we end up being really afraid of not knowing because we're so used to thinking we know. You know. And then so what do we do? We invest in that investment of thinking we know more and more to protect ourselves from the fear of knowing or realizing that we don't know. We really don't know. So we cultivate these four, uh, these ten paramis, these beautiful qualities of the heart, in order to have stability with these floods. Because all of us are experiencing these floods to some degree most of the time. 
we're being swept. So the balance of our mind, the stability of our mind, the clarity of our mind is being swept away into some obsession, obsessive tendency that involves greed and av- greed or aversion, delusion. And uh, that's disorienting. And in that disoriented state, we misperceive what's going on so that our response, our actions in the world, how we treat each other, is a result of misperception, which is why we have a world like this, where there's a lot of suffering, a lot of injustice, and the injustices are entrenched, deeply entrenched, you know, systems of patriarchy and racism and classism, just all the different ways we, you know, it's sort of this tribal mentality of of uh, protecting ourselves, protecting our own or tribe, fear of what's different, suspicious, and our economy sort of is based on that. So we have a lot of programming that sort of supports these four floods of wanting to become, wanting to get, wanting to be right with my view, my opinion, wanting to stay ignorant because to let go of ignorance means we have to go to that don't know mind. You know, we have to be willing to be a learner or a beginner and we need to learn to tolerate ambiguity and uncertainty. And that's not easy. It's humiliating, you know. And especially as we get older, you know, to... Really be a beginner when we're older is hard. Harder. So we'll start with the first. And the first one is dana. It's the Pali word, generosity. But it's it's more than generosity. It's really this attitude of mind or this way of relating to experience that's really protecting and enlivening. So we're not cultivating generosity because we're supposed to but it's liberating to cultivate it. And, you know, the first hump we have to get over is this reflexive thought that a lot of us have that, well, I don't have anything to give. And it's just a, a, um, sort of like a lack of imagination or a lack of reflecting on what living with a generous spirit is all about. The, th- the fact that, well, it may be true, like some of you probably don't have jobs or don't have a lot of money or don't have a lot of time or don't have whatever. But it has nothing, that has nothing to do with generosity. Right? Because we're really talking about the absence of stinginess in the mind and heart or the absence of fear, right? Because all of these ten qualities are gateways into a heart that's free bodhicitta, right? An awakened heart. A heart that is free of grasping or self-centered clinging. That's what these ten qualities will sort of show us the way in to that experience or to that realization. So we don't, it isn't about how much we possess or how much we have to give in a sort of materialistic sense. It's about understanding that our mind, our heart, that happiness and safety doesn't come from holding. But that's what we think. Like even bringing up this topic of generosity, 
if you're being honest with yourself, you probably should have felt like, like we have to kind of stand our ground because you know what happens when you open that door of generosity. Where does it end? You know? Sure, it starts with a dollar or whatever. But where does it end? You know, somebody needs your time. And you notice how you get tight because you don't know. Like, well, if I say yes now, this is like, I don't really understand the situation in Greece, but what some people say, you know, it's like, well, we can't, even though the Greeks paying back their debts, it's unsustainable given the dynamic there. But if we wipe off some of their debts and other people, you know, we can't be generous. We can't take care of them. So this is, this is the fear and it's really good to acknowledge this because it, it, in a way it shows us what we're up against. Like we have this programming. A lot, a lot like when you, if you have two pets at home and you put food out, one of them is going to eat as much as they want generally before the other gets any, right? The dominant pet, whatever it is, gets first uh, dibs on the food until they're not eating anymore. We see this getting played out with the squirrels, you know. If we put something out for the squirrels, one squirrel gets all the nuts, all the peanuts, and endlessly will chase the other squirrels away. And there might, you know, they just one might get one while the master squirrel is chasing the other ones away. So we have the same programming, the same kind of uh, greedy, aggressive, dog-eat-dog kind of programming in our own mind. But it isn't the only programming or it isn't the only habit energy that we can have. There are other impulses or other tendencies. They may not be as deeply or have as much momentum, but that can change, right? Because humans, you know, we have this capacity to be aware. So when we see that kind of energy getting acted out, we can see what that sets in motion. There are actual consequences to living from that place, right? And then we can see, like, are those the consequences? Am I happy? Am I okay with those consequences? And we can explore little by little. And I think this is the, the real point as we take up the study of generosity for a couple of weeks now. Don't plan to go home and give everything away because even if you do that, you know, and people really benefit from your generosity, there's probably going to be that rubber band effect where because you've triggered a lot of sort of deep primal fear of survival, then you might end up stealing <laughs> or, you know, getting even more stingy, more tight, more fear-based than how you are in the world. So what you want to do is begin to explore the possibility of letting go. Because, you know, just on a really basic level, we know we don't get to hold on to anything. What do we get to keep? Nothing. Right? No matter how organized you get your, like for those of you who actually have a house with a yard, no matter how beautiful you get that garden and all the different adornments outside and inside, no matter how organized you get that house, 
the tendency is for that to fall apart. Whether that happens while you're alive or after you're gone, but it's going to fall apart. And even to maintain it is stressful. I'm not saying you shouldn't maintain your gardens or your house, but notice that it's not solid ground. It's like sand through the fingers. And this goes for everything, you know, the sharpness of your mind or your health or your wealth. Like some of the people in Greece are finding out right now with the tenuousness of the the money that they have in banks and what's going to happen to that. So, the, you know, the just to kind of see generosity along a spectrum, we can just begin with the easy stuff, like giving things away that we don't actually want. <laughs> clearing out the basement, clearing out some of the clutter, the stuff that we have that's extra. Or if you have a lot of money, giving some money away that doesn't even like make a blip on your financial radar screen. Oh, I can give a dollar away. That doesn't affect how I live my life. It's not... It may trigger that existential fear because my mind is wired to hoard, like because we're animals, right? We're wired to hoard. When we can hoard, there's a tendency to hoard. That's why we have, you know, amazing billionaires because there is this tendency to hoard. The Buddha said that uh, having a lot of wealth without sharing it is like digging your own grave. He, He was not against never put down people who have a lot of wealth. But the point of having a lot of wealth is to do things that make you happy. And one of the guaranteed ways to make yourself happy is to share what you have to share, to live in a generous way. And this is why we want to begin where it's simple, because we'll notice it actually feels good to be generous, to give our time, to give our good wishes, to give the resources that we have, and to begin to notice. So start where it's easy, where it doesn't feel existentially threatening to give, and then notice what that feels like. Jay came on the 4th of July and fixed our back door so that the cold air won't rush in in the wintertime. I was thinking, oh, here's a guy with kids at home spending his holiday, and I, and I, because I was here yesterday teaching, and I thought, well, at first, I, I noticed I was feeling guilty about it, you know, and I do that sometimes with people who volunteer and so generous with their time and skills. And then, uh, and then I sort of, wait a minute, this might make him really happy, <laughs> you know, that this may be the best part of his day or the a really important thing. And in the Buddhist tradition, you know, when you're around somebody who's dying or somebody who's in a lot of pain, a lot of difficulty, one of the suggested strategies is to help the person remember things they've done in their lives, their life that was really beautiful, really generous. Like bring that to mind. And if we do this, like you can do this tonight before you go to bed, you're lying there and then just take some time and remember all the little and big acts of generosity and really loosen up your imagination because you might at first, you may, oh, I haven't been generous. But there, there are ways we're generous that you might not recognize. Little ways, ordinary ways of smiling, of giving someone some time, 
wishing well, petting your cat. (laughs) I mean, all these simple things. Brushing your teeth is an act of generosity. Cooking a decent meal for yourself. But do we notice it and notice the happiness that comes from these? So then when you start getting a little confidence, like, oh, maybe this isn't this should, I should be generous, but maybe this is a way to really deeply, powerfully, practically, pragmatically take care of myself. Yeah, I mean, we're willing to do all kinds of things to make ourselves happy, right? We take a lot, a lot of us take a lot of Western medicine and a lot of herbal remedies and we go on vacations and we seek out entertainments. We do, we spend so much time trying to make ourselves happy Maybe it's worth checking out. Maybe this is more practical, more effective way to make ourselves happy than any of these other ways. That's how the Buddha started. The Buddha didn't start by talking about letting go of everything. When people wanted to be happy, from an egocentric point of view, he would say, you want to be happy? Cultivate generosity. Cultivate this commitment to non-harming and develop the clarity and steadiness of your mind. These three things, he called them the root or the basis of all merit. All good fortune, wealth, being around healthy, loving people, living in a peaceful place like Minneapolis to a relative degree. So this is good karma or the fruit of good action, the fruit of merit. So just the fact that we're here in this wholesome setting and we have the time to be here and you have the inclination to be here, means that you've been generous and had some commitment to non-harming and have developed your mind so it's relatively stable and clear. Because if you haven't done those three things, we wouldn't have such good fortune, according to the Buddha. So the question is, are we interested enough to check it out? So we start where it's easy, and then the sort of middling generosity is when we're willing to share what we have. Like somebody's there and you've got this great great sort of uh, rhubarb crisp. My good friend, Denny, boiled me up some rhubarb and uh, gave it to me. So now I have some rhubarb sauce. I was thinking of bringing it in on Tuesday to share with some of my friends. (laughs) And uh, so you have a, a really good dish And uh, you could save it and eat it, but to sort of give half of it away, right? So that's like a bigger step where we're sharing like, okay, we're buddies, we're partners, we're friends. So we're going to share this. You got some good fortune. Like if some money came to you that you weren't expecting, you don't really need because you've got your sort of, you know, needs met with your regular income. And uh, like just at that, well, maybe I'll give half of it away and I'll keep half for myself. Like just explore things like that. Good fortune comes your way. Well, I've got a little time this weekend. Maybe I'll do something I really wanted to do. And maybe I'll also do something that somebody else wants me to do for them. So give that away. And so this takes a little bit more, like it's a, feels a little more risky, but we want to explore. And especially if you have kind of a a feeling that, oh, like, 
I'm on the edge. It's really nice to just play that edge a little bit, just a little bit, and see whether it feels better. Because to think you have nothing to give is to be really afraid, right? Stinginess is a very unpleasant mind and habit, heart and habit when we're stingy. It doesn't feel good. Like, I don't have time. I don't have time for you. I don't have anything to give. I put a sign up on our door. I finally found one that wasn't hostile. And it says, now it says something like, please, no solicitors, or something like that. Right, because, you know, people knock and they want something. And uh, and so it's just, it's sort of interesting. And, you know, we get emails about things. And one of the things that come to light just in the last week is, well, it's just all, it's in the news now, all the, the different things that have been happening as we sort of collectively, hopefully, wake up a little bit more to some of the injustices in our society, especially around race. And uh, hopefully most of you have heard about a number of the black churches that have been burnt in the last couple of weeks since the incident in Charleston. And uh, so there's a number of, well, there's at least one um, organization that is uh, collecting money from a lot of churches around the United States to support these churches that have been burnt, the congregations, so that they can rebuild. And and uh, so, you know, like all these solicitations came to my desk or came to me, you know, I saw that. And then I just noticed, and we want to be really honest with our reactions, like, uh, you know, do we open up to that? Do we respond? And this is sort of taking us from the middling to like more like where we were afraid, well, if we respond to this, why don't we respond to, we we'll have to respond to everything that comes my way. Well, okay, what's wrong with that? Maybe there's a way to respond without, we don't have to be idealistic or uh, ignorant about what we give, but why not respond? Why not just sort of loosen those screws of stinginess a little bit and do something. So I thought, well, it'd be nice, like, together, let's just say, because, you know, we have to support the teachers here and the office staff and the building, but why don't we just say whatever money comes into the bowl tonight, we'll just give half to those churches that have been burnt down and other organizations that are supporting this Black Lives Matter movement here in the country. And uh, so we can do that collectively. And then also in the next couple of weeks, as we look at generosity, we can also just find places that are a little scary. And initially, don't tell yourself you have to give. Just tell yourself, I want to hang out in this scary place. So you get a solicitation or somebody tells you about something or you hear about a cousin who's lost her job and now found out she has cancer or something like that. And they're not asking you could get away with not doing anything. But you may not be happy about this, but the thought arises. That damn talk that Mark gave about generosity. And so the thought arises, well, maybe I could send her some money, right? And there it is, like the seed is there. And you want to sort of, the sort of instinctual mind wants to immediately put something in there. There, she's got her sisters and brothers who are closer to her. That it's not my responsibility or something like that. You know, we, we have some. 
But now the training is, I don't know whether I should give. I don't know if I'm the person who should give or not. But what I do know is that this is interesting. It's interesting because the mind seems to think that stinginess leads to happiness. So I'm going to be reflective about this. And this is how the in the tradition they talk about these ten paramis, these ten beautiful qualities of the heart. Initially, you get inoculated with the information, right? You end up at a talk where someone's talking about generosity, and then it's like makes an imprint in our mind, in our heart, and there it is as information, right? And then lo and behold, that information keeps percolating up, right? As we see the person at the side of the road asking for money, or we hear about the cousin who lost her job, or we get the solicitation about Black Lives Matter, or the churches that have been burnt down, or whatever else might come our way. And and then that information that we heard meets the situation that we're now aware of. Because unless we shut ourselves into some hole, we're going to hear about people suffering, including ourselves. And then we want to, as a practitioner, as somebody interested in being happy and free in this world that we actually inhabit, then instead of closing it down, we want to open it up. We want to like relax there, lie down there, and feel what we feel, and begin to explore, like, this is, this is actually the positive use of imagination. Okay, let me imagine doing this. Let me imagine doing that, right? And we just, like, try it out in our imagination. Well, how does that feel? Can the heart, does that, how does, like, when I swallow that, imagine that, doing that, like, how does that settle in my mind, in my body, in my heart? Right, Because remember, we're trying to be happy. So we're not trying to feel badly, we're trying to feel good. So does this feel good? Does this feel like, like this is the person that it makes that I'm happy to be? I'm happy to be the person who did that. Is that true? And then if that doesn't work, try some out. So you, you just work with your imagination. And I've noticed like with these things, like I'm afraid... Like, like now my mind. It's just so amazing to watch our minds in this way. So first, of course, the instinct was don't bring it to mind because you're going to end up giving something because you'll feel guilty if you don't or something like that. So that was sort of the first instinct. Don't open the door. Pretend that didn't happen. Right? And then the next is you open the door because, you know, you want to be politically correct or, you know, you read that thing or you hear about something, you open your heart a little bit, just a sliver. And then I notice my mind wants to rush in. Okay, I'm going to do this. I don't want to think about it, right? I just want to, so I don't have to be in that uncomfortable situation. So be really patient with yourself, that tendency to rush in. Okay, I'm just going to give this amount. First number that comes in my head, I'm just going to give that amount. Like, you know, this is what happens when you come to a place like Comic Con where there's no fee, there's not even a lot of talk about, like, how does this place work? <laughs> and then, you know, so then it, the thought, well, there's a big bowl there, I wonder. <laughs> and it's like, it's an uncomfortable situation. Like, should I? Shouldn't I? What are other people doing? And uh, so we want to, like, learn in those places, we want to learn to relax. And like the person on the road, too. 
forget about telling yourself what you should do. Like practice relaxing and really taking it in. Internally, what's going on in your own mind. Be really forgiving about the fear, about the sort of weird thoughts. Like, you know, like, I don't know this person, but I'm thinking bad things about him or her, right? To make it easier to drive by. I mean, I notice things like that. I bet this isn't that unusual. But you have to actually be willing to soften a little to actually see what goes on in our minds in these situations. Without seeing what's going on, we're not going to be happy people. It's like if we think we can become happier in a tight way, like uh, just get me to happiness, I'll do whatever it takes, but I don't want to feel what I'm feeling. No, we actually have to feel the fear and whatever else it is that we feel. Because it's going to inform us how to be skillful. We, We don't really know how to navigate this ambiguous and uncertain world unless we're willing to feel what we feel. We've got to be intimate. And in the area of generosity, it doesn't feel good to be intimate. But it's on the way to feeling really good. Another thing you can explore, like, do you know anybody who's really generous that's unhappy? Right? So observe, like when people, you see somebody being authentically generous, not because they want you to notice that they're generous or... They're afraid of not being generous, but they're being generous because it makes them happy. Well, of course, they're going to be happy then, right? Because they're acting in a way that actually makes them happy. And that's what we want to explore. So this is the more profound kind of giving where the initial act hurts, right? But, you know, one of the things wise people, right? People like us who have been paying attention, right? We can say we have some wisdom, one of the things that wise people understand is just because there's pain doesn't mean it's not the right thing and doesn't mean it's not the thing that leads to real happiness. There are a lot of things that are painful that are really right and really the cause for happiness. And when you look at people who are having, you know, relatively speaking, a good life, happy feeling relaxed in life, feeling enlivened by life. doesn't mean their circumstances are necessarily more favorable than others. But generally they've learned this lesson that they're not afraid of short-term pain, discomfort. That, that that actually might be the way to real happiness. This is true in business. It's true in relationships. right? Imagine if couples soon as it got painful, left. <laughs> there would be no happy couples, right? Happy couples are the couples, I mean, I'm not saying that everybody's meant to be with their couple, or their partner rather, but you're not going to have a long-term relationship if you can't be intimate with the pain that arises in intimate relationships. If we're afraid of that pain and that uncertainty and that you know, ambiguity and the doubt and the rage and everything else that arises, we won't get those places where we feel the deep sense of trust. Because what we actually trust in the other person and trust in each other is that we're not afraid of this being difficult sometimes. That's what makes the relationship feel so stable, is that that mutual understanding that sometimes it's really beautiful and sometimes it's really difficult. 
And I'm not afraid of the really difficult parts. So I'll open this up in just a few moments, but I want to read uh, something from the Buddhist tradition. There's a very well-known Buddhist monk from about a thousand years ago named Shanti Deva from India. And uh, he wrote this great famous text called The Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life. So Bodhi, again, you know, means to wake up, to be awake. And Sattva means someone uh, whose life is dedicated to the awakening of all beings, right? So he wrote this manual like how to live, how to live your life as a way of supporting the well-being of all beings, which includes you. You're one of the beings we're dedicating our lives to supporting. A lot of people think that when we live for the benefit of all beings, that that doesn't include us. And one of the things we realize as we practice generosity, that some of us have deep habits of not being generous to ourselves. Like, think about some of the things we say to ourselves. We would never say that to another person out loud, right? But we're, in a sense, we're saying it out loud to ourselves. You idiot. Or something like that. So, all of what I've talked about tonight refers to ourselves as much as it refers to anybody else. And of course, like in terms of responding to what's right in front of us, this life is always right in front of us. So it always deserves some generous response because it's the life that's most proximate to our loving, generous heart. Why wouldn't this heart... I mean, one of the definitions of metta, loving-kindness is it doesn't make choices. It's like responds equally everywhere. It's like those bumper stickers that say, you know, God bless America or the Yankees or whatever. You know, it's like how easy it is for us to rationalize groups of people. I mean, but when we just think about it a little bit, why not the Syrians? You know, it's like somehow this group is deserving, but, and it's again, it's just really a lack of imagination, like realizing that as we get intimate, as we cultivate being more mindful, we'll see, you know, there is a heart that wants to be safe. There's a heart that wants to be protected and loved and wants to love, wants to be generous wants to be alive, wants to contribute. And in the same way that I can see this in me, it doesn't take much imagination to realize that it's an actual uh, everybody. And not just the people we can see on the street or in our neighborhood, at work, but it's true with all those people we don't know. We can't even bring them to mind. We don't even know what they look like, but we know they're there and they're human beings and they want to be safe and they're afraid of the same things we're afraid of, and they feel touched and supported in the same ways that we can feel touched and supported. So it it makes it harder to put people like either on the outside or on the inside, the sort of ways that we react to difference. So bodhisattva way of life. So living this way, this is a very poetic description, but it's powerful. And you get a sense that as 
sort of outrageous as it sounds to be that committed to taking care of all beings, you can get a sense of how enlivening that would be. And there's no one way. It's like, doesn't mean you can't raise your kids because you're responsible for the well-being of all beings or go to your job. You know, oh no, I got to do something important. So there's a way to be committed to living for the benefit of all beings. It can be sometimes really grand and you go maybe go march on Washington for some important changes that will protect people. Or it might be that you clean the bathroom. Or you, you know, recycle. Or something, like whatever we do, we, it's really about that spirit of generosity of taking care of everybody. Because it's enlivening. It feels good. Not, not because we have to. So he says in this manual, May I be a guard for those who are protectorless. May I a guide for those who journey on the road. For those who wish to go across the water, may I be a boat, a raft, a bridge. May I be an isle for those who yearn for landfall and a lamp for those who long for light. For those who need a resting place, a bed. For those who need a servant, May I be their worker. May I be a wishing jewel, a vase of plenty, a word of power, and the supreme healing. May I be the tree of miracles, and for every being, the abundant cow. Like the earth, the pervading elements, enduring as the sky itself endures, for boundless multitudes of living beings, May I be their ground and sustenance. Thus for every living, thus for everything that lives, as far as far as are the limits of the sky, may I provide their livelihood and nourishment until they pass beyond the bonds of suffering. Right, so that and this is useful, you know, like one of the the traps you can get in as you cultivate more mindfulness is like I want to get out of here. Because the more sensitive we become, because we practice being awake, the more we see how messy the world is, how unpredictable it is, uncertain it is, how things that are pleasant are ephemeral, and things that are unpleasant can happen at any time, basically. So then we think spiritual life is about getting the hell out of here, you know, like transcendence, get me to heaven, or something like that. So the, one of the first things the Buddha said when he started teaching is, that's not the way to happiness. Thinking you can escape the messiness of life by running is not the way. Right? That's called aversion. And aversion is the cause for suffering. So this uh, path is really about how to inhabit the middle, how to be stable in this world. And the exploration for us is to see how giving our life away, you see how it's in line with the deepest teachings of the Buddha, the sort of understanding of the emptiness of a self-center, right? Because if we're giving everything away, living our life, even giving away to ourselves, so giving away, relinquishing, not expecting safety, but instead uh, sort of being interested in supporting. I read this novel a long time ago, back in the early 80s. 
by a local author in the San Francisco Bay Area where I was living. I think Dorothy Bryant might be her name, but I'm not sure. And I think it's called The Kin of Atta. Anybody read that? Yeah. And there's a great scene in that book. There's a, a number of really cool scenes in that book. But one is it's, it's sort of this utopian culture she's describing. And uh, one thing is when they, I don't know if it was all their meals or some of their meals, but it was like totally the wrong etiquette to put food in your own mouth. So whenever there was eating, somebody would have to put food in your mouth and you would put food in their mouth. Now we do that with kids, babies at least. But imagine if just like we don't feed ourselves, we feed others. Just symbolically, you know, that's so powerful to be giving away. So find ways to play with this. Uh, Like if you live with people, just little dances, little generous dances you can do with the people in your life where you're kind of playing with what happens when we give, when we take care of, and receiving too. Because that's an act of generosity, to let somebody give to you. Because you know it's enlivening. So I want to save some time. We have 10 minutes, and we'll come back to this at least for one more week, maybe two more weeks. But we have 10 minutes. It would be nice to hear from some people your own experiences with generosity and what's in the way of generosity and, of course, any questions you have. And we have this mic. Make sure to point it right at your mouth. Anybody like to begin? Yeah, you want to pass it back? Right with the... So, I'm, you know, I'm really sitting with this piece about karma for, like, I don't know, it's been years, maybe, that I've kind of really been questioning this because you, you talked about these three things that kind of brought us here, right, in this moment, or maybe we um, have a balance of these three things. And I, I, I don't re- remember exactly the three things. And and then you also kind of you bring up these other pieces around social justice or, or identity and you know, in, in, in a lot of these spaces, right, they tend, you know, tend to be white and also probably a high, high level of class privilege, you know, social economic class. And so then, then I, you know, I have trouble like separating that, you know, or thinking like, is that, is that the karma to be, to have resulted in this level of privilege? Is that where that comes from? You know, and in, even in India, right, like I think so much, of the understanding is the karma comes from like your place in life comes from your past karma. So it's that, is that like, you know, the people with more class privilege and access, you know, is the thinking that that karma comes from greater awareness. And so it kind of becomes like a difficult place to be and sit with, you know, to, to kind of like do, do, do white people have they kind of done more to reach, you know, so it's like, really to deconstruct that has been a kind of a difficult place to sit for me. Yeah, and I think that comes because the tendency is to personalize karma. All karma is saying is that things are lawful. So if I'm struggling just to feed myself, then lawfully it's hard for my mind to be interested in anything else but my next meal. Or if I'm living in a culture that oppresses me, because of the way I look or whatever it might be, it's really hard to uh, 
relax enough in that setting to be reflective of some of the deeper issues in life. Because I'm just trying to get by. You know, I'm just trying to take care of my family or whatever it is. But see, it, it's a stretch. It's a misunderstanding of karma to say to somebody that, well, you must deserve the situation. Because the whole point of these teachings is that it's, that it's impersonal. And that's why it can really move us to action, like to see that it's impersonal. It's lawful, but it's impersonal. And that's where people sort of use karma as, like I was trying to describe in my own mind, with my own mind, like how uh, kind of close myself off to generosity. It's like we use sort of stories about the person at the corner asking for money or, you know, the social injustices, you know, well, that's a problem in the South, the South, you know, they got to get their act together down there and God bless them and all that, but it's not me, right? So it's like, uh, but we're all in the karmic soup. So like when we, like understanding privilege, when we start unpacking that, we see that, like, that uh, it's suffering, you know, it's like, uh, and uh, I was listening to, some of you maybe heard, uh, John Powell was interviewed last week, not this Sunday, but last Sunday on, on Being. He used to teach at the U of M. Uh, he's an African-American man, but he's a great scholar on whiteness and privilege and, uh, and just on the psychology of belonging. I think he actually has a law background, but he's, now he's at UC Berkeley in California. But anyway, we was in town a couple months ago, and he, he did the, the program on being. And uh, well, what was the point that he was making? Mm, I lost it describing him. Anyway, so just going back to this thing on karma, you know, we, we want to have a sense that uh, just because we're not aware doesn't mean we're not affected. Like, so one of the karmic effects of privilege is like the fear of looking deeply, the fear of kind of understanding cause and effect that that my health and my well-being and my privilege depends on other people not being privileged. And uh, so it's like moving into that uncomfortable place, but as uncomfortable as that place is for us white privileged people, and especially someone like me, well-educated, straight, white, certain age, you know, sort of like all the sort of good things, fortunate things. And so it's, it feels like, why would I want to open up to this discomfort? Well, we have to realize the suffering of being disconnected, like unaware that there's suffering there. And... Um, and this is what any of these ten qualities, but generosity especially, will open us up that we are much more alive when we move into this messy, ambiguous place where there's real suffering, there's no clear way to resolve it, but we're going to show up and we're going to respond. You know, we're going to be part without knowing how to make it better, right? That's another thing of privilege, and I was giving examples too around generosity, like rushing in, okay, I'll just give this amount. And it's the same thing with the whole race uh, issue of racism in our country. It's like, for me, it's like, I just want to do what's right, 
so I don't have to feel bad about, you know, being white and uh, being privileged. And so what we're learning is that it's okay to open to the insecurity and to the messiness and to the fact that people are suffering and some of that suffering is due to my privilege. That doesn't mean I'm causing their suffering, but there just means there's a, a real link between our affluence and other people who are less affluent. You know, and this is like true with the clothes that we buy. I mean, it's true on so many levels. But it's actually enlivening to begin to be sensitive to all of this. This is how we come alive. Otherwise, we're kind of dead, right? We get caught in our rigid beliefs and and then we're afraid of anything that might rattle that a little bit. So we have to get even tighter and more protective. And that's when things get really weird and and often even more uh, more suffering arises. So I think there there definitely what you brought up really is true. I think people do misunderstand karma in that way. And I think also you know, when the teachings come, it's often people with more leisure time, right, who, who get interested in this stuff. And uh, so one of the things we're trying to do here, and anybody who wanna get gets involved in this, please let me know, but like, how are we unconsciously, uh, you know, it's just not necessarily safe for people to come because they walk in the room and nobody looks like them. And they might actually be interested in these teachings and they might resonate with them, but they may not be comfortable being here. And so now there's like a people of color group at Common Ground. It's been going on for two and a half years and other groups, affinity groups, so that just to find, have different ways for people to get into these teachings so they can take advantage of them. I appreciate you bringing that up. Other thoughts? We have time for at least one more comment or question. Anything else come to mind? Yeah, you want to pass the mic over? Over here. I'm actually kind of afraid to ask this because it's, it reflects poorly on me, but you're talking about generosity and how it it makes people happy. And, and I can think of instances where that's definitely true. And then I think of instances where I've been generous and totally regretted it because it hasn't worked out well for me. Can you uh, kind of help explain how to get past that fear of regretting being nice to some, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. About- yeah. Well, I think the important thing is like, and the Buddha says this, you know, we want to reflect before we do something while we're doing it and after we're doing it. And so now in your case, after you've done it, is what I, you know, is that action, was that action for my benefit and the benefit of others? Right? So you want to unpack it or deconstruct it. Like, if the answer is no, seems like it wasn't helpful for this being right here. Maybe it was beneficial for that other being, I'm not sure. But So why wasn't it? What, and what did the mind see before and during the act of giving that, like, how was it seen? Was the perception skewed, like, because you felt the need, the obligation to give? Like, what was the misunderstanding that led to an act of generosity that wasn't actually healing or enlivening for you or maybe the other person? Mm-hmm. Because 
either you're misunderstanding the feeling you have now or you misunderstood, you misread the situation. Because, and that's how we learn. We want to be reflective because sometimes we do get, get caught up. For example, we see somebody suffering or hear about it and we give away money in a way that's not really appropriate given our other responsibilities. So what were the roots of that misunderstanding? Did we get caught up in some exuberance, right? And we sort of got a little idealistic and weren't grounded and connected with the reality that I have kids at home or I have student debt and I have this payment in a month. So what weren't we paying? And why wasn't the mind aware of that? Because remember with mindfulness, it's not just about a focused attention on one aspect, but it's also we're developing this breadth of awareness that includes everything, right? Because that's kind of back to your point where we're understanding the lawfulness. So when we see our own situation or another situation, we understand it's lawful. It's like this is the natural unfolding of causes and conditions. And understanding that way, then it begs the question, well, how can we participate in this moment to change the course of the lawful causes and conditions? Because this is where we can affect then what transpires next, what unfolds from here by how we relate. So now in this case, you may not be able to undo but you can at least learn whatever can be learned from that so it doesn't get repeated. Yeah. We should probably leave it here. It's a few minutes after 8.30. We'll just take a few seconds and let go of the words. Just enough time to take a breath or two together. Thanks, everyone, for being here and wishing you great insight as you play with generosity the next few weeks. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.